right, welcome back to another edition of uh, Mormon Expression. We're here in Studio Fist in Your Face in Salt Lake City, live with another beautiful studio audience. Um, welcome, one and all. I'm here tonight with uh, two great panelists. First of all, to my left is the wonderful Lindsay. Hi, Lindsay. Thanks for having me on again, John. It's always my pleasure. And um, joining us for the first time is Mike. Now, Mike, you're, um, you've been with Sunstone for a lot of years on the board of directors. That's correct. And you are a professor of organizational behavior, organizational uh, theory. Uh, organizational behavior, leadership, culture, um, conflict uh, resolution, all kinds of stuff like so, that. So uh, let's, just, let's just cut to the chase. Give the church a grade on its organizational behavior. Uh, a, to, a to F. Uh, Anywhere a, in the, a, a D minus and slipping quickly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, welcome. We're really glad you're here tonight. Um, um, Can I say something about Mike really quick? Sure. Mike is the author of the Passive Aggression, Aggression Study um, with Mormons. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's like one of the most Googled Mormon terms I have ever seen. So if you haven't checked it out, you have to see his essay on Mormon Passive Aggression. Where would we find that? Sunstone.org. Uh, go to the, uh, uh, the search window at the bottom of the page. Just type in Passive Aggression, and it comes right up. And when you and I did a podcast on Mormon passive aggression, we cited your work. Oh, we did, did we? We did. Yes, it made quite an impression on you, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I learned my passive aggressive. Was that passive aggressive, Mike? Um, I, I, I think I said in the podcast, but I bond with people um, on airplanes when I say, you know, oh, you're, you're working in Utah or whatever. They're traveling for business. I always say, isn't it funny how passive aggressive everybody is there? And they always say, yes, they like that. We're new best friends because I've identified uh, what they've seen. All right. First of all, um, in case I forget, um, I, I sometimes neglect to recognize Randy. Randy is the producer of um, Mormon Expression. He's the one that makes this all happen. You all know because I tell you every week that I've burned out. And without Randy, this wouldn't happen, the studio and everything. So thanks to Randy. I appreciate everything he does. Um, and he's a good he's a good egg. All right. Also, um, if if there there are times to time when I make mistakes in the podcast, and um, people will tell me not not very often, but it happens. Um, I have two. I have one from a couple of weeks ago, um, and then I have one from last week. Um, I I said that I thought that the book the box of Joseph Smith's box that the Book of Mormon was in was filled with sand. I stand corrected. It was filled with flaxseed. So flaxseed is the right answer, not sand. Flaxseed. Um, so, I mean, that's one step closer to truth, right? Sand, flaxseed, gold plates. We're, we're heading down the right. <laughs> it's certainly healthier. <laughs> um, secondly, I erroneously um, pointed out, we were talking about Kate Kelly's excommunication, and I said more than one time that she stood before 15 men. Now, the way excommunications work in the LDS church, if you're a man and you have the priesthood, you appear before the high council, and there's the high council itself as three people, and then there's 12 high councilmen, and there's this, these tables that are specially constructed so that you're sitting there staring down all 15 men. Um, the benefit is the high council is instructed to divide in half, where six of them are supposed to represent you, and six of them are supposed to represent God, um, because you're being tried by God. Um, Women do not have this courtesy. There is no, it's, it's the bishopric. 
and they don't have to have any representation. So I'm embarrassed because I gave the church a little bit more credit than they deserve by saying 15 men. She did not have the courtesy of that. Um, and so I apologize for that error. You're absolved? I don't know why you're looking at me like you've sinned against me. People always say I talk too much, but when I stop, then everybody just looks at me. That's because we're afraid of you. Uh, well, uh, with good reason. All right. Um, I'm going to talk to the brethren for a few minutes tonight. So we had two women um, in the news in this past week, past couple weeks. Um, we had Kate Kelly, of course, and we had Allie Isom. And we're going to talk about um, Allie a little bit more tonight. Um, we talked. We've talked a little bit in the last couple weeks about... Um, well, not just the last couple of weeks. We've talked about patriarchy and we've talked about rape culture. I've been ashamed and chagrined at what I've seen going on on the internet. And I know I don't, you shouldn't have high standards for the internet, but still. Um, I've seen this on both sides. And the worst of the worst was that the images of the, both these women were, were spliced onto, um, onto um, pornographic images. Um, the, 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 the higher order of misogyny was that both women were criticized highly for their looks, for their makeup, for being women. Um, and we saw this from all sides. Um, this is an example of rape culture. It's an example of rape culture because what rape culture does is it's a violent, physical, or psychological attack on someone because of their sexuality. And to do what was commonly done with, say, Allie, and reduce her to her physicality, to say, you know, she is a spokesman for the church because she's a woman and because she's pretty. And then what would generally be done is they would assault the beauty. They would say she's highly made up or she's had plastic surgery or this is a psychological attack on Allie. So here's my rule. This is what I'm going to talk to you boys about. Wait, wait, wait. I just want to interrupt and say I do think it's valid to point out that she's a woman only because of things she's arguing against. Uh, she, it, it's important to note that she doesn't have the same privileges as the men she's arguing for. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with pointing out that she's a woman. Here's, here's the problem that we have in our society is that women are by de default defined and valued by their physical beauty. Um, and then that is used as a cudgel against them. It's used to attack them. And so I saw this going on all over the internet. The people were, were, the people were attacking both Allie and, and Kate Kelly, um, on their appearance. So I'm going to give you some rules to live by, gentlemen. Um, so that And you, ladies. This and, applies to women. And ladies. Um, okay. Never comment on the looks of a woman. Don't do it. Um, if you are going to do it, the first rule is do it exactly how you would do it with a man. When in doubt, think about the last time you complimented or discussed or mentioned or talked about the looks of a man. If you talk about the looks of a man or you compliment a man on his looks, you're good. Follow the same pattern with women. If you don't do it with men, don't do it with women. If you compliment somebody on their physical appearance, do not use any sexually loaded terms. This is beautiful, sexy, um, you look hot. Attractive, hot, anything that would suggest value in her appearance. Modest. You, you cannot use these terms. 
So if you're going to compliment a woman on her looks, which you shouldn't do unless you're already intimate with her, and I'm even hesitant to say, and I don't mean intimate like you're intimate. <laughs> I mean that I mean that you have an intimate relationship, um, uh, that, that that she's a close friend. You should only use terms that don't reference specifically beauty. So you should say, you look fabulous or you look great if you're, if you must go there. I but would say just try to avoid commenting on anyone's physical appearance. Generally, unless you are very close to somebody, you shouldn't. Now, what, what, what I'm, what I was trying to, when I was shaping my little rules here for, for the brethren, is I was going to use the touch standard, which means if, if there's a woman who's in your life that you can't touch, then you should never talk to her about her appearance at all. But I know that there's a lot of creepy men out there who touch women they shouldn't touch. <laughs> so that standard only applies to the rest of us. But so um, that means that anybody you see on the news, you should never comment on her appearance ever. Don't do it. Don't do it at all. It's not okay. Um, yeah, I, there's a great documentary I'd recommend to everyone. It's called Misrepresentation. It's on Netflix, and it's kind of a, a 101 to these issues. It talks about how Sarah Palin, if she's cute, if she's a cute woman, then she's the sexy slut. And if if you're not um, as into your parents as, say, like Hillary Clinton, then you become the old hag or the bitch or something like that. So women really uh, can't win in the media, and so we don't want to add to that problem. Absolutely. So some might say I'm defining a double standard. Absolutely. That's because societies have a double standard, so we're correcting for that. And so you're not, if you are a fan of this podcast, you're going to now commit to me that unless you are very close friends with a woman, you will not comment on her appearance. That's out of order. That's against the rules now. Will you agree to do that? I just use the commitment pattern. See what I did yes. there? All right, so let's go to the news. Um, so that, that's that's the first news that I was um, aghast seeing this this happen. On once again, it happened on both sides. Um, critics of the church went after Ali. Critics of the um, um, critics of the whatever liberal movement went after Kate, and it quickly devolved into about the, these secondary characteristics that had nothing to do with what they were saying. And it's, 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 it's insulting to me and it's insulting to our culture and it just needs to stop. Okay. Um, yesterday, um, an important ruling came down. I uh, mentioned this about two or three months ago when it was argued before the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court, um, sided in the case of Hobby Lobby. Um, to understand the case, there are two sets of laws out there right now. There's laws that deal with, um, businesses. There's, so there's a certain business law. And then there's another set of laws for nonprofits. And then there's another set of standards for religious nonprofits. They have a special exemption. They have a lot more privilege. Um, what the Supreme Court ruling basically said is that a, a private business that is not a religious entity can assert religious rights. And this is going to be a mess that has to be detangled for, for years here. The church was, of course, um, they were happy. Um, Jessica Moody, um, who is an LDS church spokesman, called this ruling a milestone event in upholding religious freedom. Um, and she said, The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has signed an amicus brief in the case, arguing that for-profit businesses have a religious right not to provide drugs and devices believed to, to sometimes cause abortions. Just to be clear, the church is talking about the pill. It's talking about 
regular birth control. The church and its private entities does not provide standard birth control. We're not talking about the morning after pill. Um, we're talking about the pill. And the church does not want to. And they, whenever somebody says some, you know you're talking pseudoscience at this point, right? When you say some people say, um, and that's what the church is. is, is the, the pill is not associated, correlated scientifically with abortion. Um, Except inversely. The more you have people on the pill, the less likely they are to end up having abortions. This is the paradox of, of, um, of fundamentalism in America that nobody else in the world can understand. Why, on the one hand, the fundamentalists are against sex and ostensibly against birth outside of marriage, but do everything they can to fight against birth control. It makes no sense to me, but I guess it makes sense to them. And, and what happens is most people go ahead and have sex anyway, end up with unwanted pregnancies and... Um, and abortions, well, yeah. And abortions. Um, so the problem with this ruling is now private companies can assert religious values. Now, I would walk you through a little mental exercise here. We have the freedom of speech, right? Freedom of speech is guaranteed in the Constitution. Freedom of assembly is guaranteed, right? Freedom of the press is guaranteed explicitly. So you can say whatever you want. You can assemble wherever you want. You can print whatever you want. So what is the freedom of religion then? Well, the freedom of religion is an inverse right. It's one that I detest, I deplore. Because it's only exercised to actually take rights away from other people. So as a normal company, you cannot fire a secretary, for example, if she converts from being a Jehovah Witness to a Scientologist. That would be a protected class. Religion is a protected class. We have, we're not allowed to discriminate based on religion, unless you're religion. Then you're free to discriminate based on religion. So whenever we talk about the assertion of religious rights, we're not talking about the assertion of any right. We're talking about the assertion of religions to invert rights and to deny rights from people. So this is not at all about Hobby Lobby or anybody else guaranteeing religious freedom for its employees. It's quite the contrary. It's the rights of the owners of the company to take religious um, or take rights away from their employees on religious grounds, specifically on Obamacare. I would like to correct you on that because I would just like to point out that Hobby Lobby did not take away penis pumps or Viagra from their um, employees. So wait, there's nor, penis pumps in Hobby Lobby. Uh, nor did they you can craft one out of marbles and. Oh, oh nor, nor did they divest their employee uh, pension funds that invested in the very companies that produce pharmaceuticals like the pill. Yeah, it's this is this is a disturbing. Um, development as far as I'm concerned. And I think the United States legal march towards this religious state where I, I don't understand this conservative movement that plays such lip service to libertarian values and in the meantime wants to enforce this weird constructive morality on everybody. Um, it's just it's just bizarre to me and i it's a it's a it's a it's a sad day i think i think the ramifications of this are going to messy up the courts for quite some time did you see that the lds church made a statement our very own ali isom oh she did oh i read the one by jessica moody was there another statement? oh jessica moody thank you it was jessica moody yeah You're that's right. one i read yeah okay if you weren't on facebook no i was looking for the quote <laughs> she is on facebook right now john has an issue with me being on the computer <laughs> i'm always on facebook all right, so um, that's uh, that's the Supreme Court. Um, yeah, thanks, guys. Um, 
Well, and as a business professor, my advice to uh, to Hobby Lobby uh, is that they uh, cease and desist from managing in such a stupid and foolish manner. They 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 will have no shortage of people, uh, perhaps not uh, aborting their fetuses as employees, but in boarding, uh, aborting their applications as candidates seeking employment there. Do you think do you think it'll be impactful? It's been a couple years since um, the Chick Fil A. Um, stuff. Uh, was there, has there been any research done on to say if that's been impactful? Well, the, uh, the issue with Chick-fil-A was not something reached down and affected the, um, employment contract and benefits that the employees at Chick-fil-A had. So what, what, what happens in the, um, uh, in the employment law arena is you have, um, uh, you, you have moral rights that are argued in the sphere of public opinion before they ever become legislated that companies have to follow. So, you know, prior to 1964, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, uh, prior to that, employers were free to make any employment-related decision based on race or color, religion, sex, or national origin, or so on. So for the 1950s and up till 1964, uh, the uh, rights to be free of discrimination based on those categories in employment was argued in the court of moral opinion. In 1964, the civil rights, or the uh, the U.S. Congress passes the Civil Rights Act and now makes it illegal. Um, one of the one of the things I have in, in in the classes that I teach, both the undergraduate and the MBA program, uh, is there there are certain chapters in a lot of the material I cover where we get into employment law, and, and I often have students in class ask me or managers ask me, "Ooh, can I do this? Well, is that against the law? Or can I do that? Is it against the law?" And my question to them is, "That's the wrong question to be asking." Rather than focusing on what you can do and get away with, right? The the question isn't whether you can now discriminate in the healthcare package you offer the employees that you have. Question is whether you should. And from a purely business point of view, it's a completely asinine rate way to run a business. I think it definitely is. I, I think it'll definitely impact their 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 higher level of managing. If they're hiring entry level people, I, I think that's still this is just my opinion. That's up for grabs. I think they'll have a bump over it. There'll probably be people who want to go out and support just like Chick-fil-A had. Um, I have a real problem. It's a real conundrum. I do not believe in – I generally don't believe in boycotting anything, and I don't believe in boycotting on religious grounds. That being said, I haven't been to Chick-fil-A since um, mostly because it's just not really good food. <laughs> but but um, um, Hobby Lobby will be um, – Hobby Lobby's missed my business more than once because they're closed on Sunday. Um, that's, that's, that's well, where boy, will boy. you get your paper mache gold leaf? crosses to hang on your Michael's, wall, John. Michael's, hello. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> the, inner, the internet. Well, boycotting as a consumer is one thing, but when you have a benefits package for your employees that is less attractive than the other job opportunities that people have, they're going to go elsewhere. They're going. So what it means is that Hobby Lobby is intentionally, deliberately, and willfully adopting an employment practice whereby they're discouraging the better and the brighter members of the employment pool to go somewhere else. Yeah, and and where this wasn't an issue until Obamacare came out, at least it wasn't as transparent. Like Beneficial Life, for example, the big church-owned 
um, for-profit insurance company has for a long time denied um, uh, birth control de- um, devices to women. But it didn't become an issue until, you know, the Affordable Her- Health Care Act where it was mandated. So that's why this case came to the courts because um, before they were basically allowed to do it. So this short, sort of shines a spotlight on the issue. That's a positive thing. But the negative thing is now we now have case law that allows companies to assert religious values. And this scares me quite a bit. If there's any silver lining, I, what I hope is the trajectory of this decision will convince broader American society that we ought to separate the question of health care from the arbitrary and capricious employment that you may or may not happen to find. Exactly. Your your access to health care should not be a function of where and when you happen to get a job with an employer that provides it or not. Carol. Um, I, I think that Hobby Lobby is probably going to be fine with this because – it promotes voluntary segregation. If there are customers that are coming in there are supporting them because of this, and if there are employees that are staying with them and the employees that are applying with them and that get jobs with them are happy with this, it's it's all in support with this. It's a statement. Um, I see it on Facebook all the time with people I know that are still in the church. They go to Chick-fil-A on purpose to support them. But, Same thing with Hobby Lobby and with the employees that you expect to find there. It's the people that you expect to go there, and they can all support each other and say, hey, this is us. Well, I think that's true, and having lived in the South, I saw that quite a bit. But that doesn't play like in the Northeast. So it, I think it's true that this won't impact Hobby Lobby in Alabama or Tennessee at all. But Hobby Lobby is a national con- company. I I think, to Mike's point, if you're going to have employees self-select, if Hobby Lobby wants to be the – I'm going to use this as a pejorative, the Walmart of the crafting industry. That's fine. They're going to treat, they're going to be known for treating their employees, um, with a different standard than a lot of the companies. And they're probably going to get people that are less educated who, uh, are not familiar with their rights as workers, um, down the road. These are changes we're going to see down the road. And I think that that is the tragedy in this is that some of the people that need these services the most need their employer healthcare the most are not you know, going to get it. And that is how we oppress people, right? That's that's how Walmart makes a good profit, by treating its employees terribly. Well, and how we spin a message. Last time I was at Hobby Lobby, I noticed a sign that said, we are closed on Sunday to give our, our workers time with their families. Now, it made me chuckle because how much extra time does Hobby Lobby give their employees with their families than any other company? The answer is zero, none. It doesn't, there's, they were saying, oh, by closing on Sunday, we give them extra time. No, they don't. They don't give them any extra time at all. It's just for a, a company that would be open seven days, their employees would do staggered shifts. Um, so, but, but that's the kind of spin you see from religions all the time. Uh, but I, I do think it, it casts a, a light on it. I happen to know, working in the software industry in Salt Lake City, that the church has a hard time filling its software positions. Um, and it has for years. Because a lot of faithful members of the church just don't want to work for the church at all. Now, 10 years ago, they paid lower. They don't pay lower anymore. They pay, they pay market or above market and they still have trouble filling positions because there's this perception that the church is going to exercise unrighteous dominion or they're going to pray in the board meetings or just things that even believers might be uncomfortable with. Well, or, or, or to their own damage, what they do is they sit down and they say, okay, uh, we are going to seek out and employ 
Uh, Tip will recommend holding members. That's uh, that's and most our target. of them married men. Yes, because they've got families to support, and of course, women you don't, right? So what what happened? Th- this happens at at BYU all the time. Um, they paint themselves into a corner when it comes to recruiting and selection. So you know, I, I don't know what the number is of say brand new minted. PhDs in physics that that you know uh, come out of uh, graduate school in the United States every year. Let's let's say it's 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 maybe five hundred. Okay, well, what percentage of the American population is LDS? Like most of you it, mean, the church claims, or that are actually LDS. <laughs> yeah, let, let's let's give it the the, the most benefit of that of the doubt to the church. Two percent. Two percent. Okay. So out of 500 PhDs in physics every year, how many of those would, uh, on average, be LDS? Well, two percent. Ten. Following along. Okay. So, so BYU sets out to create a world-class physics department. They have immediately from the gate excluded 490 of the brightest PhDs graduating in physics the year they go out and hire. But these guys have temple recommends. Well, that's that's the uh that's that's what they consider to be a criteria, but you know, you look over and over and over again at the challenges they have and they say, "Well, that's fine. We'll just continue to recruit and wait until we can get the best of that of that 2% of the graduating market." I go, "Well, that's fine. It could work to your advantage, but but what happens is you end up perpetuating uh, an awful lot of uh, uh, of inbreeding, and and you also end up creating extraordinarily second rate academic programs, precisely because uh, they they have this criteria. Temple recommend has absolutely nothing to do with academic credentials. So if you go to Notre Dame, for example, and, and BYU is perfectly within the law to have a hiring perfect. A preference for not only church members, but active temple recommend holding church members. Notre Dame could do the exact same thing, and yet they choose not to. So are you saying that uh, Hobby Lobby is going to be paying out a lot of money in maternity leave? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no, actually, that I mean, that 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 is one of the possible implications. But, but, but when it comes to, uh, uh, say, hiring in the religious department at Notre Dame, you can be an avowed atheist as long as you are top-notch academic. Whereas at BYU, you're not going to get a job there, even if you are a top-notch academic, simply because you don't have the, the requisite uh, orthodoxy or, or the temple recommend. Now, of, of, of the two, the religious studies department at, at BYU versus the religious studies department at Notre Dame, which is, is uh, uh, the more authentic and highly respected academic program. Would be the one who hires um, people who studied theology. And actually, another shit. It's okay, Hobby Lobby employees. There's this great place called Planned Parenthood. You can just go get your birth control there. Hi, listeners. Mormon Expression is recorded live on Tuesdays in downtown Salt Lake City. Mormon Expression is going to be changing its recording time to 6.30. Why 6.30? Well, because we've launched our new sister podcast, Reasonability. Reasonability is going to start being recorded on Tuesday nights at 8 o'clock in the studio. Please come down and join us for one or both. Meet John, talk to the panelists, and take part. We look forward to seeing you there. Mormon Expression is a listener-supported podcast. If you like what you hear, please visit our website, 
consider making a donation or becoming an ongoing subscriber. We can't do it without your help and we definitely appreciate it. Okay, well, Mike and I are both from Sunstone and so I just want to make a plug for John because John and Jared Anderson are going to be having a debate this year at the Sunstone Symposium. We're going head to head, yes. Going head to head. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be, um, Sunstone Symposium is at the University of Utah Student Union Center this summer, July 30th through August 2nd and I guess, you know, some people have a perception that it's only for faithful Mormons. What's that about? Sunstone? It's for everybody. I've been. It's an open forum. They let me in. Yeah. So, I mean, we have panels. You can go look online at sunstone.org and see all kinds of different topics. We have everything from practicing fundamentalists that come to um, ex-Mormons to never-Mormons to faithful Mormons. So you're saying if you want to recruit a third wife, that Sunstone is the place to go? Is that what I'm hearing? I have heard that you that could, has happened you, before. You could, you could meet people who do that yeah, or or people who know people who do that. But uh, but don't become one of those people. The, the preliminary program is up at uh, sunstone.org. Uh, three days of uh, what I refer to as the uh, Mormon Meat Lovers Convention. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Is that... If well, by I was drugs, thinking more you mean, mean, mean by meat yeah. lovers? I was, I, was, I was thinking more in terms of gospel meat, but okay, oh, okay. John, if that's how you take it. <laughs> All right. Is that yeah. what we can expect in the debate? I'll be there, I think, Saturday late afternoon. Five o'clock. Five o'clock. Um, Jared and I, Jared is a professor of religion at Westminster College, and he and I will be arguing as to whether or not religion has value. Um, I'm conned. In case you were wondering, <laughs> taking the contrary side there. Um, I, this podcast uh, will be coming out. Well, it's out now since you're listening to it. Um, and I'm pleased to announce the release of our sister podcast, um, Reasonability. You can go to reasonabilitypodcast.com or search Reasonability on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher or whatever and um, subscribe. I am the host of that along with a panel of six um, wonderful people, and we—it's um, sort of like Mormon expression, but we don't talk about Mormonism. First episode is the question of whether or not God matters. What you—you ask like she doesn't. No, I he just, looked at me again, like I was supposed to answer that. Well, I, you know, I'm curious if you're. About, that's all right. Podcast. I'll I'll let you know. Um and and um. Well, that, 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 that's it. That's all I've announced for today. All right. Well, let's jump in. Um, this podcast is a special edition. We, um, shift our schedule around. Of course, last, the last couple of weeks, a lot of things happening in the church with, um, the announced excommunication of Kate Kelly and now the postponed, um, disciplinary action against John DeLynn. Um, and um, shortly thereafter, one of the church spokespersons, Ali Isom, made an appearance on Radio West, which is a local radio station with Doug Fabrizio, and um, the fabulous Ted Hansen, who I have unrequited man love with, um, um, actually transcribed the entire um, one-hour broadcast, and um, I'll put a link up on the um, website. I always say I'll do that, and I never do, but no one ever, no one ever, uh, no one ever notices. I always say I'm going to put something up there. I don't think that people actually go to the website. I'm going to put like a coupon for a free candy bar there. One time, see how long the candy bar sits in my cabinet. Um, um, I did that in a college paper once. I said, if you read this, contact me, and they never did. I actually did that in my mission, on my mission stuff too. Um, one of my mission le- letters, uh, you know, the, the report you sent in the president, I put there, if you actually read this, let me know. 
He never said anything. Well, that, that's like the graduate student who put a $20 bill inside of his thesis. It was bound to put in the library stack. Uh-huh. And then every year on the anniversary of his graduation, <laughs> he would go to see if it was still there. <laughs> and it was. Yes. Okay. Um, so we're going to start. We're going to go through the transcript. Um, we're not going to read it line by line. It's 15 pages long. Um, but um, we're going to start. The church actually on June 28th, which is three days ago, released a statement. We're going to start with that statement. Then we're going to look at um, Ali Isom's, um, um, her interview with Fabrizio. So the, 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 I, I do want to read before I start the first sentence of, of Ali's statement. Because um, Doug immediately asks about the excommunications. And she says, well, if I might begin first with initial context, while we can discuss process, the church is not going to discuss private matters of faith between a specific church member and the member's local leader and God. The decision process remains confidential and we'll respect that. And she goes on for 15 pages to contradict that sentence. And the church, everything that they've put out since, there's been nothing confidential about this at all. Now, I would say that um, the church plays an ambiguity, um, and this is inside speak. When you say something is confidential, what you're implying is that it's about sex, um, and, and it's shameful, and it's not to be talked about. If we're talking about apostasy, even by the very nature, like she goes on and on in this interview, and the church releases statements to talk about apostasy and why apostasy is bad, but then they say, but we're not going to discuss the specifics. As if there's something else going on that they're not going to talk about. for sex. You don't know. If you're doing it right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I just want I just want to point that out that there's a lot of double talk going on throughout this whole thing, and for her to lead with that and then go on and talk about apostasy, apostasy, apostasy. Because if she really believed that a sentence, she would have just kept asserting, "We have nothing to talk about. This is a matter between between local ecclesiastical um, authority and this woman." And she wouldn't have been there in the first place, which I think makes this interesting, the fact that the church actually sent her out to Radio West. Well, the thing to, to keep in mind also with this concept of, of uh, uh, a priest and penitent, uh, penitent um, confidentiality is that it's created for the sole purpose of protecting the penitent, not the church or the priest. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, about confidentiality that is not designed to protect arbitrary and capricious decisions made by the church or, or, or the priest. And in fact, if, if someone making a confession, uh, decides to release the priest from his or her obligation for confidentiality, then they would be free to talk about it. And the reason I know this is because uh, years ago, uh, uh, during the September 6th, uh, several of them made public statements saying, I hereby free my bishop and stake presidency to discuss uh, openly and publicly any and all details related to my court. And the church's response was, oh, no, 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 that's confidential. We can't do that. And, and the individual's response was, no, you don't understand. Confidentiality is something I demand of you. It's not a cloak behind which you get to hide. True. But I mean, that, and yet they do. Well, that's, that's, that's what this is all about. It's probably because they keep excellent records and they just don't want to be disorganized. I'm sure I, that's I've heard, I've heard that the, that the proceedings are very organized and well thought out and fair. So. 
I'm just going to trust that. All right. <laughs> um, okay, so the church begins, and, and it's amazing if you read through this transcript how many times the church asserts or flat out says, God says this, Jesus says this, that, and that you are out of line with God. I was flabbergasted being in my current position, the hubris of being able to say that. And we'll, we'll read through some of these statements. That's what struck me the most about, um, Isom's statement here is, is she wasn't a spokesman for the church. She was a spokesman for Jesus. Um, and, and it's, it's really fascinating. And that's how they begin this statement in God's plan. They're beginning with the very first clause saying, we are speaking for God. And, this is not how the church has always been rhetorically, to be so demanding of saying, we are the voice of God. And what's fascinating when you look at the history of the church is the less definitive the church gets, meaning the less they actually say, the more they insist that they're speaking for, for God. Um, because Joseph, who was very definitive, uh, very rarely had made that construction. He was fine enough with his own authority. But these guys who don't say hardly anything at all um, are insisting all the time that they're, they're the spokesman for Jesus. Okay, so second, I'm going to skip down to the second. Well, they say all church service is equal. On we know this farm, because they list women first. They say, we express profound gratitude for the millions of Latter-day Saint women and men. Do, See what they did there? We're equal. Does, do, Done. Yeah, well, I, I've, I've talked about this before. The, the reason you know this isn't true is because if you pick up a cro- copy of the church news, when they appoint stake presidents, read what they have listed there. And that tells you what the church values because they, otherwise they wouldn't list it. And because it's only a, they only have like 120 words. It's not, it's, it's a very small column. And read what they say about the men and read what they say about the women. And it'll tell you what they value in each of them. So I don't know why the church insists on saying things that nobody believes. Nobody believes that all callings are equal. No one believes that. No one does, right? Listen, I feel just as blessed being in nursery for five years as I do, say, uh, having my husband be a ward clerk. Not not only are you more blessed, they feed you and you get to take a nap right in the middle of it. Why are there big red chairs in the conference hall, but in the stakes in the centers, there's not? They don't sit any longer. Well, it's because it's a sign of authority. Chairs are a sign of authority in every business around. It's, it's. But John, those aren't better than than the humble nursery leader. You get to be the first one that teaches a three year old about that, Jesus. The nursery leader does get crackers, which would which would call me to the nursery. All right. So we understand that from time to time, church members have questions. So this is one of the church's new bullet points. They say members are free to ask such questions and earnestly seek greater understanding. We felt special concern, however, for members who distance themselves from church doctrine or practice and by advocacy encourage others to follow them. So they keep saying it's okay to ask any question. And heavens bless Doug Fabrizio because he did pin um, Isom to the wall on this. And we'll we'll get there in in a minute. Because the the church keeps insisting it's okay to ask questions. The obvious question to the church is how? How do we get to ask questions? And the answer is basically in your heart, silently to yourself. (laughs) 
I want to point out in that sentence that they say members distance themselves as like an active verb, as if someone who is being excommunicated has any sort of choice in if they are distancing themselves well, from Allie the congregation. Says they do. Allie says this over and over again. She, it's, she, it's their choice. She not only speaks for God, she speaks for, she talks about the intent of the, of the people um, a lot, which is very telling um, organizationally. Okay. I think the last paragraph, the last sentence here is, is the most telling. Simply asking questions has never in- constituted apostasy. Notice that word simply. Um, that's key. Apostasy is repeatedly acting in clear, open, and deliberate public opposition to the church or its faithful leaders or persistent after, re- or, or persisting after receiving counsel in church and teaching fault to, um, false doctrine. So let's go back. Public opposition to the church, its faithful leaders. That's sort of North Korea-ish, right? I do like the ambiguity. I don't know. I don't know how it got passed. So, because we can't, if they're not faithful, we can disobey them, right? Um, church, faithful leaders, or persisting after receiving counsel. Does there anything in there about truth? Is there anything in there about doctrine, scripture, following God, following your heart, teaching false doctrine, following the the teachings of of, of Christ? Is there anything about that at all? No, this is, this is all about obedience to a central authority. The church, its faithful leaders, or persisting after receiving counsel. And counsel, for those who aren't paying attention, is a code word in the church for a command. This is when you're told to do something. We call that counsel. I, I think the big word for me is apostasy is repeating, repeatedly acting in clear open and deliberate pu- public opposition. I love the word clear because this couldn't be muddier. Like, I don't know what <laughs> clear opposition is. Is that like giving the finger to Temple Square every time you walk by? Or is it like asking the prophet to do what he's supposed to do, which is get revelation? Like, what is clear opposition to the church? Well, and this goes to the questioning thing. It seems to be you can ask any question, but you can't persist in asking the question. Once you have been received counsel or your question is contrary to what the brethren are saying, you're done. At that point, it, it, it goes to apostasy, which is sort of the same as saying you can't question. So clear. Well, this, this whole statement to me is a textbook case of how doing doctrine in the LDS church is little more than amateur night at the Apollo. Uh, there is no clear process or mechanism by which doctrine is established in the church. And in this statement, you see this inability to parse out the difference between culture, tradition, practice, policy, uh, the, quote, unwritten order of things, and doctrine. All of those concepts and ideas and constructs are used interchangeably throughout not only this document, but throughout the uh, engagement between Doug Fabricio and Ali Isom. Um, nowhere can anybody turn to church canon and say definitively, ordaining women is against doctrine. What they say here. Uh, the first two sentences of this June 28th First Presidency and Twelve Council of the Twelve Statement, in God's plan for happiness, eternal progression of his children, the blessings of the priesthood are equally available to men and women. All right, so first, first 
the the first construct they're talking about is quote blessings of the priesthood. That's which, which sounds like one. trickle down economics, right? Right. Well, uh, but 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 here's where it quickly derails. The second sentence: only men are ordained to serve in priesthood offices. Okay. Well, blessings of the priesthood and offices of the priesthood are two radically and fundamentally different things. So let's just get that clear. And every time. You have people getting up on their soapbox declaring apostasy, uh, when, and, and counter arguing that women have all the blessings of the priesthood. It's like, that's not the issue. That's not the argument. Blessings of the priesthood and offices of the priesthood are not the same thing. So don't confound the argument. But then what they do in the third sentence here of this statement is they immediately shift the debate that has nothing at all to do with the question at hand. They say, and besides, all service, all service in the church has equal merit in the eyes of God. Huh? Huh? Look at this. Everybody's, everybody's serving. Isn't that wonderful? I go, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to hold out this first sentence that is confounded and conflates the second issue in the second sentence. And before you figure it out, we're going to divert your attention over here to the squirrel outside the window and talk about how wonderful it is that everybody gets Being to be blessed. Being a janitor is so church. shiny. I can't pay attention to anything else. I'm so distracted by the blessings. Shiny, then, shiny blessings. Then, then in the second set, uh, paragraph, they get into this whole question about church doctrine, history, practice, uh, but my question is where? Where is the doctrine stated? Outside of McCor- uh, McConkie's Mormon doctrine, what other book do we have in the church called the Book of Mormon Doctrine? There isn't one. There is no official canon outside of the canonized scriptures. Yeah, and it's clear that even asking for that clarification repeatedly puts you in a state of apostasy because as you're so eloquently pointing out, apostasy is merely questioning the church. It's, 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 it's not, it's not doing anything doctrinally because there is no doctrinal basis for Mormonism. There's not. And they know this. They're not dummies. They know they can't, because they know that there's people like Lindsay who, once they pin themselves down to a doctrine, can immediately show something else recently of some authority saying something that's contradictory to it. They, they are a record keeping people and it is their fault. It's come back to bite them. But like ordained women, um, like Kate Kelly said from ordained women, ordained women is not criticizing the church. They're not questioning the church. They are in, in a very real sense, investing faith in the leadership. They're saying, this is what you do. You're a prophet. We're asking you to ask God. If they were criticizing the church, they would say, listen, prophets are wrong. God is wrong. Um, that's why women don't have the priesthood. You're that's failed not what they're prophets. Doing. You're not speaking, but that, that, that would be, uh, uh, a very clear and and open challenge, but but instead, um, you know what's what's happening is they're unable to articulate the doctrine. And when you when you have reasonably bright and eloquent people like those who are members of the September Six or Kate Kelly or John DeLynn and others who can actually articulate criticisms with the quote unwritten order of things, then. What happens with most of these lay church leaders who are businessmen, who are accountants, who are lawyers, who are physicians, who are insurance uh, uh, managers? They don't know how to do doctrine. And Margaret uh, Toscano told me in her court an extraordinarily interesting 
conversation she had with her stake president. Uh, so those of you who don't know Margaret Toscano, she's one of the most brilliant feminist theologians that we have in the church today. Um, uh, the, the, the breadth and scope of her knowledge uh, is uh, overwhelming and her ability to connect all the threads and to paint a tapestry is, is unsurpassed. So this woman is sitting down with a stake president who does, you know, he's, he's, he's some business manager somewhere. And he's trying to engage her in church doctrine and history and theology. And at what point, and at one point, Margaret says she was just baffled by the nonsense coming out of his mouth. And he said something absurd. And she says, and, and asserts that it's church doctrine. And she says, how in the world is that church doctrine? Where are you getting this from? She says, quote, literally, what he did, he looked at her in the eyes, raised his right arm to the square, and said, by the authority of my priesthood in the office that I hold, I declare what is doctrine. Can I get an amen, huh? Huh? <laughs> All right. So, so you move to the last paragraph of this, of this first presidency in Quorum of the Twelve Statement. And for me, there is a little silver lining, which is they, they get as close to the edge of infallibility as they can without actually claiming that terrain because they say anybody who repeatedly acts a clear, open, deliberate public opposition to the church or its faithful leaders or persisting after receiving counsel in teaching false doctrine, they're the ones who are guilty of apostasy. So if it turns out the historical record demonstrates that, oh, I don't know, say, uh, Dallin Oaks, uh, uh, talk at general conference at last, uh, uh, priesthood session turns out to be muddled and confused, they can always pull back and say, well, you know, you're only, you're only obligated to follow faithful leaders. And right. so that there's always, they, they, they always make sure that they can maintain that escape clause to where they can always say, well, you know, Brigham Young was just speaking as a man when he declared the Adam God doctrine as, as gospel truth. Right. And they never define what faithful is. Um, and they don't really define what leader is, actually. Okay. Well, uh, do you want to keep going or? Well, let's, let's jump right. into, let's, we'll, we'll circle back to all these concepts again and again with, um, um, Isom's, um, statements here. Um, you know, she comes on and, and I, I love, um, I'm trying to decide to go for a Nazi reference or just go straight to a 1984 reference. There's so many choices, so many choices between the two. Um, there's so, the, the, the number of times she used the word love. And of course, you know, in the book 1984, um, that's one of the, the axioms. Um, uh, what is it? War is love. No, it's been a while since I read the book. Come on. It's, uh, hate. I don't know. Whatever. But, but she keeps referring to this as an act of love. A loving invitation. Yeah, um, a, a loving, uh, a loving attempt to uh, uh, keep them included in the church. Yeah, and if you go to the um, second question um, that that um, Fabrizio asks, and she starts on with her prepared statement, you can tell there's a couple times she launches straight into her memorize them um, stick, and she says, "I'm grateful for the chance." You know, she starts out with, "I'm grateful for the chance today to talk about what the process looks like." So first of all, discipline processes are not necessarily expulsion. 
it's not exclusion. It's rather an inclusion. Now remember, and we've, we mentioned this, that you can't pray. You can't talk in church. You're not allowed to wear your own underwear. You can't pay tithing. Like it's defined almost exclusively in terms of exclusion from the in group in very marked ways because we all know how you get called on to pray in a Mormon congregation. Somebody comes down into the congregation and asks you. There's no forethought to it. So if you are excommunicated, you get the pleasure of over and over and over again telling people you can't pray. And here's how the conversation goes. Brother Larson, could you say the opening prayer? No, I can't. It, it's all right. You'll do just fine. No, I, I can't. No, no, no. Every, everybody feels nervous. No, I can't. Oh. Oh, porn. Okay, porn. Yeah. Porn. <laughs> okay, so she said it's rather an inclusion. It's meant to be a loving invitation to return to the Savior. And there's that implication over and over again. It's not just that, that you know, think about what they're saying about Kate Kelly. They're not saying just that she's bucking the doctrine. They're saying she doesn't know what Jesus wants. This is there's a paternalistic turn um um tone throughout this whole talk about attacking not her for being uppity and wanting what the men have, but they're saying she is out of tune with the Savior. She's not following God's will. She doesn't love Jesus. And that's that's borderline um I don't know. Passive aggressive. Very. Um and so Fabrizio says, Wait, 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 what are you talking about? <laughs> if you're excommunicated, you can't do all this stuff. He says basically what I just said. And then she says that that's just some participation. But what's funny is she says, we fully expect and hope that the person will be in the pews. We expect. We're still asserting, we've excommunicated you, but now we're even ex exerting more control over you. We've thrown you out, but we've put you in more shackles. We put you under more conditions. You're not really been exposed. And, and Allie's right. You haven't really been exposed. You've just been locked down um, um, because there's been a breach. I want to I want to point out that the actual term courts of love and people don't think that we actually use that. That is like their term. There's a 1972 article on LDS.org from Elder um, Simpson. Let's see, Elder Robert Simpson, and he it's called Courts of Love, and he talks about this, and he talks about a young man um, who was facing excommunication, and the young man said. I have just lost the most precious thing in my life and nothing will stand in my way until I have regained it. End quote. And I think that that speaks to what you're saying. I think this is another control mechanism. We take something away and make you uh, really, really feel like you have to earn it back and you have to work hard to fit our terms, to be obedient, to earn it back. It's it's a court of love much the same way uh, as it is to get gang raped by the Care Bears. I don't know how to follow that. I'm up. oddly that, aroused. That, all of a sudden. <laughs> I would like somebody to animate that. That is awesome. No, please uh, don't do that. <laughs> wow. Uh, what I was going to say is just I was a bishop, and when my uh, one of the things we had a, a bishop's council, and the stake president came in, and he, he was talking about uh, disciplinary councils, and and the thing that he said was he said. Be careful with excommunication. He said, rarely do people return to the church after they're excommunicated. And this is a stake president. I assume it's coming from an, an area authority as well. They understand what it does. People do not come back from this. It's not to 
uh, coach them back and to bring them back into love. If you want to do that, maybe disfellowshipment works. But when you excommunicate someone, they know, they totally understand that this is rarely something that somebody comes back in, into the fold from. Yeah, it, it is an exclusion. It's, an, it's a psychological you know, assault, pure yeah. and simple. Um, and everybody understands it. It has really significant meaning in the Mormon faith because there's this idea of striving for perfection. And I think in, in the Mormon paradigm, having made a mistake holds more weight than, say, if you're evangelical. Because there's a certain pride in evangelical religion of saying, I was a deep sinner and now I'm recovered, you know, and, and not, and not in, not in Mormonism. No, it, it's game over. Right. But, but John, you mentioned something very important and that is when the penitent person says, I am a sinner or I have committed this egregious, you know, error, uh, and I want to find my way back into the fold. But you look at the people who've dis- been disciplined, uh, like Kate Kelly and like the September 6th, they're not guilty of any crimes, right? What, what exactly is Kate Kelly's crime? According to the evidence, her only crime was insubordination to unrighteous dominion. You know, the scriptures clearly teach us that unrighteous dominion is the disposition of almost everyone. In other words, it's the default norm. It's not the exception. Well, and, 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 and Doug goes after, um, Isom on this point and keeps asking her, what is, what is the her doctrine? crime? What is the crime that she's, she's done? And Isom jucks and weaves and she cannot answer the question. In, she, in fact, Doug puts explicitly to her, he says, I get that, uh, uh, um, the question is, where does it say in Mormon doctrine that women cannot hold the priesthood? Yeah. Her answer? He said, and then he, he, it he doesn't. doesn't. Where is that? And then she says, the priesthood is defined as an office. It's also defined as authority, and it's defined as power. And Doug asked the brilliant question. He says, where? By whom? She just laid out four doctrinal statements, and Doug's saying, where are you getting this? And then, then she did just... Did she raise her arm to the square, I wonder? <laughs> it was radio. We, we couldn't tell. Um, so, but, but she says it doesn't. And, and so at the end of the day, uh, because insubordination is not a crime identified anywhere as an excommunicable offense, what happens is they have to call it, quote, conduct contrary to the laws and order of the church. So what what actually happened in in in, in Kate's case, for instance, uh, her leaders ordered her to quote cease and desist from activities from which they di- with which they disagreed, and uh, they were unable to successfully show the merits of their position by means of quote persuasion, long suffering, gentleness, meekness, or love unfeigned. Instead, they simply said they they simply ordered her to obey them and be silent about her questions. Or face a church court. If that's not a textbook illustration of unrighteous dominion, I, I don't know but what is. You're giving is. them more credit. You're saying they ordered her. They ordered her to do nothing. She tried to get them to talk to her. No, okay. I'm talking about the stake president and the bishop. Okay. They well, they they're the ones who did flat out say, "You are, you know, in May you're being disfellowshipped. It's because we've told you to take down the website. We've told you to distance yourself. We've told you to, you know, to stop making public statements, to stop recruiting people." And she's going, "But." You know, how exactly is what I'm doing wrong? Look at the scriptures that, that support the questions I'm raising, as well as all of our historical and doctrinal 
evidence in the church. Besides, all I'm doing is asking our leaders to pray and ask God about this matter. And the church leaders, they, they were, her, her, her stake president, bishop, and, and her area rep, they say, well, our views differ, even though they're simply based on our traditions and our unwritten order of things. I mean, they didn't explicitly say that part, but, but they essentially saying, my views nevertheless are doctrine because I'm in charge and you're not. So you're now guilty of apostasy and teaching false doctrine and besides obedience. Haven't you heard of that? Well, how openly aggressive. And I said two months ago on this podcast, the church could diffuse this very quickly, shut the whole movement down by just saying, we prayed, no dice, sorry. Ordained women, by the way they framed themselves, it would have been game over for them. They would have had no other move. Um, But the church won't do it. And I've said just last week that it's because, well, there is no God directing the church, in my opinion. But but if if there is, and they're right, then it's a really... um outwardly aggressive move to never acknowledge saying you're asking for one simple thing and actually let's let's go to that point i think we're on about page five here um that that doug quotes the gordon b hinckley interview from 1997 and the the interviewer says um so to give women the priesthood you have to have a revelation and hinckley says yes but then hinckley says there's no agitation for that we don't find it our women are happy they're satisfied. In, um, his, in his echo chamber, they were. And and so Fabrizio asked the obvious question. Well, Hinckley says they're not asking because there's no agitation. Now, you've just gone on this big thing about doctrine, and here you have a woman who's agitating, who's asking for it, right? Uh, exactly. We Many Mormon feminists think of this interview, and we, can, we call it, there's a term, it's called agitating faithfully. And... We can we consider an invitation from the prophet to ask for what we want, which was is how many of us understood revelation to work to begin with. Well, the church, some of the the, the um, thinkers inside apologetics and defenders suggest the blacks and the priesthood on the same thing. They say, well, uh, the church were all just a bunch of bigots, and we all were just well, didn't. They're think saying to that ask. now. <laughs> yeah, that's what they're saying now. That's their apologetic defense. We just didn't think to ask. We just assumed society. Like as if the church missed the entire civil war and and reparation, everything that happened, you know, but they just missed it, um, and that's their defense. We were just products of our time. Well, but but, but I, I would argue it's more pernicious than that, and and it goes back to the question, uh, the comment I made earlier about um, theology being akin to amateur night at the Apollo within the LDS Church prior to 1978. Okay, I'm dating myself here a little bit. I was in high school. In the mid 1970s, I attended a high school that was 40% African American. Um, I, my dad was a mission president at the time. This is over in Spain, so I was attending high school on an Air Force base. Um, and so, as a mission president's son, I was, I had mission fever and I was, uh, you know, into uh, talking about the church uh, every opportunity I had. And in the mid 1970s, this came up an awful lot: the uh, the blacks and the priesthood. And so, I worked really, really hard to understand what this was all about from the church's point of view. And and I guarantee, without question, it was always described to me as a doctrine. It was a doctrine prior to 1978. The denial of priests of the blacks was a doctrine. 
Well, it was, even, it was, even, it was for oh, years after that, they insisted it was a doctrinal reversal. Like it well, was doctrine before. And it was, it's only recently in the last 10 years that they've started. Actually, it, 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 in my experience, it started a lot faster than that because, um, uh, the, uh, it surely has become more and more the trend. The, the, the characterization that the denial uh, priesthood to the blacks part of 1978 was a policy but no it was the the only people who ever called it a policy prior to 1978 were the people like lester bush and others who were writing that this was not doctrine and the mainstream church was flat out saying no no no, this is doctrine and that's why we can't change it but as soon as it came around all of a sudden the rhetoric started to change it's like well of course we changed it was a policy it was just a practice so we could change it and for the record it's still doctrine it's still in the book of mormon it's still in the Pearl Grey Prize. That but they changed the headings, so it's okay. Yeah, but 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 see, the, the the thing is, reversing your rhetoric and calling it a po- a policy rather than a doctrine now doesn't help. It actually makes it worse because if it was a policy, there's absolutely no excuse for having waited until 1978 to change it. But we're jumping ahead on the on this issue because the church is still fully behind that this is doctrine. As a matter of fact, um, so he asks, Fabrizio asks, you know, this thing about agitation. And um, um, Isom leads and says, well, the conversation is not the problem. It's what's being said. It, oh, no, it's not it's what's tone. being said, is it's how yeah. it's being said. You didn't ask me right. Can I, can I just like, point out one thing though? The converse, conversation insinuates that there is actually an exchange, like a two part exchange. It's not a conversation when someone just talks at you. When somebody parks a dump listen. truck in front of you, that's not a conversational element. Yeah. Um, and, and it's and, a dump truck of love, John. <laughs> So, so she says it's not, and she even actually before says it's the title. It's, it's an imperative. When you say ordained women, you're telling us what to do. The hubris. Like, anyway. So at the end of this, at the end of her statement here, she goes on about this, okay, it's tone. And then she says, we must really, in, in English language, okay, here's a grammar lesson. When you use we, like the royal we, that's patronizing. If, if you say, we must clean up our room before we're allowed to have ice cream. You're talking down to somebody, okay? Keep that in mind. That's a very Mormon speak. I actually was instructed in seminary to stop using I and to use we instead. Um, that's special. We. <laughs> yes. Uh, we had to have that work for you. We, we are must... all special. We are all not offended by John right now. <laughs> Just the choice ones. We must really honestly assess where we are. Are we saying our way is better than God's way? Do we trust God? Or are we attempting in some way to counsel God? And it's really a matter of intent. So she starts is asking God a question, attempting to counsel God. Yeah. She so she starts saying it's tone, but then she quickly says, "You are questioning God by asking us to pray. You are questioning God's will. This is God's will." And we are the spokesmen for God, and what we say is God's will. There's That's- no, there's not even that deliberate of a distinction. It gets really blurry when she says, you know, she doesn't say we speak through God. She's just saying by even asking this question, you're questioning God. It's completely contradictory to what she says later on. Well, in the next question, um, now remember, she's a spokesman for the PR department of the church, not the gospel. She even makes that. She says, I'm not a theologian. She answers every theological question he bats at her. He asks her one specific question about church. He says, um, 
she wants to have that conversation. She, she says she wanted to have that conversation, but she was turned down. Why? So he asks her the one question that her job is to answer. And she says, I know I can't really speak to that. It predates my time. I've only been on board six months. She did come from Governor Herbert's campaign after a sort of controversial, wasn't it the John Swallow thing? Anyway, she stepped down to be, spend more time with her family. Okay, I, I work for a company. I work for a big company. If you're going to appear before somebody on anything controversial, they hand you a list of talking points. They hand you this thing that you sit. And matter of fact, go on any airplane and look at it in first class, and you'll see half those guys are memorizing a thing of talking points. And that's what you do. And what she should have memorized is every interaction the church had had with ordained women. If they were a normal company. Oh, that would have been easy. But they're not. They don't care. They don't, they're, they're not going to give ordained women the time of day. Um, well, I, actually, I, I have to admit, my professional hat, uh, uh, is off to Ali Isom as a PR professional. So there's good news and bad news. The good news is that Ali Isom did her job as a PR rep for the church Actually, quite well. The bad news is she did her job as a PR rep for the church quite well. Well, I, I agree. I was going to say at the beginning, thank you for calling me out, because I have to say that I think Isom did a fabulous job, given what she was, what she had to do. Um, and the reason she didn't have an answer to this question is not because of incompetence on her part. She's obviously very well read, very spoken. They didn't tell her. Um or uh, I, I think the, the marching orders would have been – and you see this over and over and over again throughout the interview. Doug tries to press her on a, a question, and she says, well, you know, that's a good question. And then she gives an answer completely unrelated to the question well, that he asked. Exactly. Let's look at the next thing. So when she says that, she says, I've only been here six months. And Doug says, but would that – but that wouldn't be unreasonable request, Right. For the ordained women organization to say, all right, let me meet with you and talk about this. She's saying, he's saying, that's what they're asking for. And what does she say? Okay. So, so he's asked the question a couple of times. He's boxed her in. She says, what I can tell you right now is it's such an exciting time to be a member of the church. We are 15 million members strong. She literally launches into the, to- the, the standard talking point. She earned her PR rep paycheck that, she, she with that answer. She didn't answer the question at all. Um, 185, it's, it's like when I, when I first looked at the transcript, I'm like, wait a minute. We, we had a transcription error here. We, we had the, the introductory statement in the middle of this interview. Um, um, that, that's when, that's when Doug, you know, he listens to her politely for a minute and then says, but they, they, they didn't get a meeting because they, their proposal crossed the line. Do you think that's fair? And she says, when you use a grammatical ultimatum, ordain women. And then he says, ordain women? That's really a problem. <laughs> and then she says, that is a doctrinal change. It presents problems. No, and see, my argument is, is again, they're back to this inability to separate doctrine from culture from practice from policy and quote the unwritten order of things which is why this becomes an intractable mess and will never be resolved in any sort of way that has a semblance of of uh, uh consistency i would also like to say that she i mean you guys say that she did a good job i'm not so sure i think that she really shot the church in the foot by saying there's no doctrine. The church shot itself in the foot. She's representing the church position. The reason I like this transcript, and we don't have enough time to go through it in detail, <clears throat> is it really clearly 
lays out the church's position. I think she's a very clear communicator. It's just the church's position, <laughs> the position is, is untenable. Yeah. Okay. Actually, actually, I, I would back up to her previous answer, the one that you were referring to uh, just a minute ago, where where she says uh, 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 Doug Fabrizio is talking about the interview uh, uh, Gordon B. Hinckley had in '97 with the uh, 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 Australian reporter. Now women are not agitating. And then, and then Kay Kelly's response is, well, it's really the spirit of one's intent and one's heart. I'm going, okay. If that's the case, then you would never think to hold a trial on, uh, on Kay Kelly because the intent of her heart, uh, and, uh, the spirit, uh, uh, that I have seen operate in her is completely consistent. With everything that I understand the, uh, the central character in the New Testament was all about. And then she goes on and says, uh, you know, Jesus is the Savior. Numer- numerous times he exemplified placing the Father's will before his own. And when one's actions are no longer about thy will, when they are more about my will, we must really honestly assess where we are. Are saying, uh, are saying our way is better than God's way. Do we trust God or are we attempting in some way to counsel God? Okay. Um, Kay Kelly is, uh, not guilty of that. And what I would submit is just the opposite. That the first presidency and the 12 are in fact guilty of this very charge. They're the ones who are unwilling and un, uh, 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 unable to step up to the plate and recognize that what they're defending as church doctrine is nothing more than the false and foolish traditions of our fathers. What they're defending as doctrine is policy and practice. It is not the mind. It is not the will. It is not the, uh, the vision of God that women be subjected to this servile station in the kingdom. And for them to step forward and to insist that Kate Kelly is the one whose intent and spirit is askew while they're advocating the very, the very pernicious, uh, uh, cause of the illness within the church as if it were the very cure is what is at the heart of the scripture that says beware of those who who uh, are uh, wolves in sheep's clothing because they call right, they call good uh, wrong and wrong black they call night day and day night uh, and they call uh, that which is evil good and that which is good evil this is precisely why mormon in chapter 8 asks us the rhetorical question that nobody is willing to confront in the church where he says why have you polluted the holy church of god that question presupposes that there is a pollution in the church. I know why, Mike, because those men don't have to go line up outside Temple Square. They already get to go in. Well, and there in, 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 in Isom's um, second paragraph here, third paragraph, she does this. She plays with language quite a bit in, in a really tricky way that backfires on her. Um she says that discipline and disciple have the same Latin roots, um, as every good dominatrix will tell you. Um, <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> and, and disciple is meant to be to discern a true follower, a true follower. And, and she, she, she defines that she gives that definition of disciple and discipline. So she just, in the first sentence, she says discipline as in a church discipline. And then she says this, Christ taught we need to be disciplined in thought, word, and deed, 
and it's how we fully engage as a true follower in the body of Christ. The process of discipline is never done hastily. Well, that sentence is ambiguous, the, the middle one. To be disciplined is to be structured. It also means, you know, to be punished. Get a little, get a little spanking. <laughs> um, and I wrote a post out about this and I, and I said that exact same thing. Um, being punished by God is that beautiful, tingly feeling you get after being spanked as a child. It's not sting. It's did God's love say, wait, wait, manifesting wait, wait, stop, itself. Stop, stop the whole podcast. What did I say? Did you just say that beautifully tingly feeling you get after getting spanked? I did. All right. All I right, did. Resume. Will someone Resume. please cut that out and put it on the web somewhere all right, all right. so I can never run for office? Uh, so, um, first of all, Christ taught we need to be disciplined in thought, word, and deed, and it's how we fully engage as true followers of the body of Christ. It's been a while since I've read the New Testament, and I don't pretend to have perfect recall can anybody tell me where it says that in the new testament i don't recall that from my from my book well the the, i think the more critical point in 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 isom's wordplay is that she's not doing wordplay she's see she's engaging in in uh uh word uh, murder it's she the, the 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 way she's using discipline has nothing to do with the root disciple the the word discipline etymologically in english today has morphed into the same notion of discipline which originally did mean disciple in the sense that i will uh use my own uh, 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 e- emotional, spiritual, intellectual self-regulation to be on the path that my master has pointed out. But the idea of perverting that into an act of unrighteous dominion, whereby I will punish you because you're not doing what I'm saying, is not the etymological root of the word discipline. So my reference to BDSM was not merely comical gold genius. <laughs> it That's debatable. <laughs> it... The, what they're saying here is to be a disciple in Mormonism, you must be disciplined. You must submit. By exercising your own agency as a free will offering. No, no, no. That's, that's your liberal sunstony stuff talking. What they're, <laughs> what they're, what they're saying is that you, if you want to be a good member of the church, you submit. You submit to whatever it is we're going to do. You are going to be a disciple by allowing us to discipline you. Well, Um, look at all her references to Christ um, are inherent with that. If you really follow Christ, then you don't question God. If you really follow Christ, then you're submissive. All of her her scriptural references insinuate that. Yes, and there's a great paragraph. um, This is further down. um, um, And Fabrizio says, if somebody's excommunicated, if it goes that far, or disfellowshipped or whatever, because there are a range of possibilities here. This doesn't have to be assigned off by headquarters at church. This is complete within the purview and stewardship of local leadership. He's asking, can they just do whatever they want? Yes. And and her paragraph is, is, is brilliant to understand Mormon theology. And I'm going to read the whole thing. I apologize. It is, and moreover, it's in the purview of the individuals themselves. Let's make sure we're clear on one thing here. The individual chooses how this process progresses. This is the double bind. I, you made me do this to you. They use choose like they use love. You don't, made me hit you. Don't make me come back if, there. If you had the dishes done when I got home, I wouldn't have to hit you. I wouldn't have this to was, love you. This was your choice. I'm doing this out of love because I want you to learn that the dishes need to be done when I get home. It's your choice for me to, to do this to you. Just so, like the Savior. The individual chooses how the process progresses. 
There is no way that a letter is a complete surprise to an individual. They have, they have already been in month long conversations with a local leader. She knew this was coming. We didn't do anything that she didn't know she already deserved. They know that this process takes time. It is never hurried. It is never rushed. Even though this had to happen while she was in Utah, they couldn't forward it. They couldn't wait till she settled into a new ward. But, um, Isom says it's never hurried, never rushed. It is intentional and it is done in a loving way. She was not present. We don't even know what their deliberations were. It is never an ambush. It's not vindictive and to assert otherwise is misleading. These people, these people, whatever you say after that lead in is always gold, right? <laughs> these people in any of these processes, disciplinary process, they have choices. It is their choice to remain in the congregation. It is their choice to remain in the body of Christ. It is their choice whether or not to listen to the promptings of the spirit and align their behavior with the savior's will. What she has just basically said is that every church disciplinary council is a kangaroo court because they already know what God's will is. There is no sense of, of, of conversation. There's no sense of trial. There's no sense of discussion. There's no asking. There's no petitioning. Because Isom is saying they already have God's will. They already know what God wants. And that's the, that's the rub here. You can't ask because they are the spokesman for God. Well, and, and, and even if you concede that they were, the net effect of this particular interpretation of doctrine is that, or, or of scripture rather, is that uh, you end up uh, fomenting one of the very threads that uh, I argue feeds uh, and uh, exacerbates the passive-aggressive culture that, that we're in. Um, you know, that, that this idea of, of having a culture of obedience and submission, uh, you know, John, you asked where in the New Testament does it say that uh, uh, a disciple has to be submissive? Actually, it's in Mosiah 3.19 where we're encouraged to be submissive in all things like Jesus was submissive to the Father. But submission can come in a variety of forms, right? So, you know, the Scriptures clearly teach us that Jesus was an example of submission to the Father in all things, but it's important to recognize that some forms... Uh, flow from the unrighteous dominion <clears throat> of others, which result in ungodly submission. So, you know, when you have uh, leaders exercising unrighteous dominion and say, I'm in charge, and I said, you have to, and that's all there is to it. So submit to my authority. That's the ungodly kind of submission, as opposed to Jesus, on the other hand, where submission came from a voluntary, authentic, and willful act of choosing a better path. In the case of Jesus, his submission involved an unwavering and an unyielding commitment to embrace charity and compassion uh, and the social justice that is the antithesis of the kind of submission that uh, Isom is communicating here uh, and that represents an extraordinarily... Uh, toxic thread within Mormon culture. Well, and here's the reason the church doesn't care about anything you're saying. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been painting the picture that they position themselves as the spokesman for God. 
they they honestly believe that they're, whatever they say is God's is God's will and voice. This is a dangerous idea to those of us who aren't in the church. By the way, when any anybody starts talking for God, the rest of the world gets really nervous. But that's not the most dangerous thing that appears here. Um, she he asks about this. Um, um, he, he's Doug's asking her about the conversation, the fact that she's a- absentee, and um, and then he asks about. Is or is associating with ordainwomen.com apostasy? It's just associating with them. Can you answer that? He specifically says, because she's going on and on. So if people put up profiles and associate with ordained women, is that apostasy? And she says, quote, I'm not sure that I can answer that question. It really, it depends on where the person is in their heart. Now, two things came out in that conversation just presently. She is tried in absence. And the definition of apostasy is her internal state. And not once does Isom or anyone else ever say, we would really like to know what I, I, what Kate Kelly has to say. No, because, she says the bishop already knows her heart. Right. That's my point. These guys not only know what God wants, they know exactly where you are. And she says, she says down, down here, Doug keeps pushing on her. Um, so you can't answer broadly. You can't answer the question. And then she says, isn't that the beauty of it? <laughs> and beauty he says, also then, uses then he love. says immediately, isn't this confusing? He says, but isn't this confusing? The, that it, um, that she says that it can't be some general broad bush here. No, He's, it's individually applied. He says, either there's a rule or there isn't. And then she says, either the savior knows you or he doesn't. Um, and which, which I can live with. The question is whether my bishop and stake president. I can't live with it because it's that double whammy. It's she, they're saying there's God and there's you. So if that's, if her statement is, is true, either save you nor knows you or doesn't, if she really believes that, then the church has no role in this whatsoever. If they really believe this, then what's the church doing? Well, because the church can read your mind and can read God's mind. And you are not relevant in this process, and God isn't relevant in the process because we're here representing God. And that's what's dangerous here. And I would like to also point out, because we just kind of skipped over this, that she gives an entire paragraph to saying how the PR speaks for the church. She says, well, first, let me be clear that public affairs does nothing in isolation or insulation from our church leaders. We act at their explicit direction. In fact, we have a number of them who chair a committee who sits in council with us regularly and are well aware of our efforts. And then she goes on. So... She's basically telling members of the church that this is a, the stamp of approval from the presidency, which yeah. is a stamp of approval from God. And, and, and of course, the uh, 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 church leaders from the, the, you know, first presidency and the 12 all the way down to the local leaders would, uh, would respond by saying, like President Wheatley did in his, in his letter to Kate on May 22nd, in taking this action – of putting you on on disfellowshipment status uh, in May, I have quote acted upon the promptings of the Holy Ghost, end quote. So that's how they insinuate themselves and conflate this identity of being one with the mind of God when they act in His or Her name. Well, that's why the all callings are equal thing at the beginning is so problematic. Because Kate is saying, and I've criticized her for this, Kate is saying she feels inspiration to do so, right? She feels called in her relationship with God to go forward. And these guys, 
rather than say, we've got a Mexican standoff here because God's telling us both different things. We're going to have to call a truce. That never even crosses their mind. Um, they just say, no, we have the one true um, faith of Jesus. And, and if you read this implication, this is what I'm kind of pointing out, is they are berating and undercutting her faith. They're not so much saying you're being disobedient. They're saying you don't know the will of God. And I do. And I do. In your life and in your heart. So, so the, the attention that you're taking and your willingness to accept your own self-awareness of what's in your heart is false. You're being misled. You need to listen to me. Oh, by the way, I have an arm of flesh. But that's immaterial because I have the authority of the priesthood in my office. So I'm going to tell you what God is or is not putting in your heart. Right. And I will excommunicate you if you disagree with me because I have that authority. Which is why all callings are not equal. One of the criticisms I remember when I was growing up in a church <clears throat> that the church had against Catholicism and other religions was that through the Middle Ages and before the printing press that the priest and the church inserted itself between the person and God. And to me, this is an example where the church actually shows its true colors because they come along and they say, look, you can have personal revelation. You can have a direct relationship with God, and it's very personal just between you and him. But here they are saying, actually, it's not. It's the church that is inserting itself between you and God. We are inserting ourselves, and we're saying, no, you have a direct relationship with him, but we're here sitting here in the middle telling you exactly how that relationship should function. And that's an example. And, and they'd say it's their charge. It's their obligation uh, to do so because they have to, quote, protect the purity of the doctrine and protect the interests of the church, which was actually mentioned by K. Kelly's stake president and bishop in both of their letters, they're saying, we have to rein you in because you are doing damage to the church, you're polluting the doctrine, that's unacceptable, and it's our charge as the watchman on the gate of Zion to keep you from doing that. But I'd also like to just reiterate, because, I mean, we talked about this briefly, but I think this is one of the most important things she said. If she speaks for the church leaders... She said there is no doctrine for this, which means Kate Kelly is not polluting any doctrine. There is absolutely no doctrine that says women cannot be ordained. It's not polluting anything because it doesn't exist. Well, that's, and, that's and because, the point. And, and because they can't pin her down, then they always come back with, well, our, differs, uh, our views differ. I'm in charge. Therefore, I make doctrine. Therefore, my opinions are doctrine. And you... Uh, uh, by extension now, are guilty of apostasy. They don't call it insubordination, but that's what it is. She's that's guilty what, of insubordination. That's what it is, and that's what I've said over and over again. There is no doctrine in the church. It, that's all just fluff. And but, we're going to love you by cutting you off from your eternal families, right. taking away your marriage. So being obedient is being obedient to your file leaders, and you have the spirit as much as you agree with them. And if they switch, they switch. You have to agree with them. And if it's if you're not in agreement with them, that's you. Let's read the end of the interview. Um, Doug says, well, here's the thing. I mean, she was on the program yesterday and she expressed this. Aside from this one issue, which is, it is that issue, this incredible devotion to her church. It's the thing that she says is so special about her, is that she's a Mormon. That's my thing. I'm a Mormon. That's the thing. She's defined by that. And Isom says, yeah, I get that. So Doug's saying, 
She just wants the, 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 the priesthood for women. She believes in Mormonism and she identifies herself as a Mormon. So they're in agreement that this is her identity and that, that she's genuine. By acknowledging that, by, by Allie saying, yeah, I get that. She's saying, yeah, I know that she's not just, you know, being an agitator. Then Doug asks, wouldn't it be a shame if this impasse that she has, if this question she keeps raising were to cancel all that out and she were to be, have to leave the church. Wouldn't that be a shame? And Isom sums it up beautifully. It truly would be. It's her choice. And then he says, Allie Isom, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's her choice. We had no choice in this matter. We did nothing. All you had to do was submit to our every whim, to whatever we say. And whether it makes sense or not makes sense, you are in alignment with God if you believe everything I do, and you're out of alignment with God if you don't believe. We're all equal, but I have I can speak for God. And even if I'm not speaking for God, you still have to obey, and we can excommunicate you. And it's your choice. We have no fault. We have no folly. No one is ever held responsible at all for saying things that are out of alignment with the gospel or with the future church. But anybody who chooses... Out of conscious, um, Kate Kelly is, if, if you can say many things about her, but you can't accuse her of not being genuine, of not being honest, of not being sincere in what she's wanting. And that's their problem with her. Why do they go after people like Kate Kelly and they don't go after me? Because I'm not sincere. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think my takeaway here is anytime you hear anyone in the church use the word love or choice, you need to run away fast because those words mean something completely different probably to you than they do to the institution well at, at, at the end of the day one of the one of the um, things that I hit upon years ago when I started to uh, get more involved with uh, with Sunstone and uh, actually using my mind to think through things and as well as <laughs> the spirit um, which DNC tells us that the spirit of revelation is that God speaks to your heart and to your mind, not one or the other. But, you know, years ago when, uh, when I was baptized into the church, I was baptized into the church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. It's the church of Jesus and the body of Christ. I did not join the church of Thomas S. Monson of Latter day Apostles. I never, ma- I never made a covenant to obey them. I what never, about the PR team, or the or 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 the PR uh, uh, team? You know, I'm not a disciple of Joseph Smith. Uh, I, you know, to the degree that these individuals point me to Christ, I'll sit up and pay attention. But when they don't, I refuse to be misled. Yeah, it's it's a fair point, and that's why you're not serving as stake president right now. I'm, uh, um, and you say that like it's a bad thing. No, no. Um, so the reason I decided to have this discussion tonight is this is very significant. The church for the last 30 or 40 years has been kind of in hiding, really, probably since 78. They've, they've really retreated from, and they just kind of pop out and do like guerrilla raids across the border every once in a while, then, then run back into Kandahar. Um, and that, that's, that's the way they operate. They're in the caves. And it is really surprising and telling that they would send Isom um, to Fabrizio. Um, Fabrizio usually, I, he's, I like him, but he's a, he's a, he's a softball pitcher. 
And, um, he actually, I was quite surprised that, that he kind of, he kind of stepped out of his, um, out of his shell a little bit and, and kind of held, held, um, Isom's feet to the fire. But I think this is very significant. And there's a lot more in here than we obviously have time to go over as to the church's stand and how they're, how they're, um, they're presenting themselves. I'm really, not to be cliched, but I'm really reminded of, a few good men, you know, um, the old colonel sitting there on the stand just wanting to bark down all of us and tell us that they're keeping the line and we need to shut up and just obey. And that's kind of this, this, this thread you're getting. Can I just say one that thing? That movie's rated R, so if you haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Tom Cruise is in it. I've seen it. So I, <laughs> I just want to point out that, um, Something that the feminist uh, movement is kind of working on is we see this as another opportunity the church has repeatedly said in the last week that questions are welcome. And so I would just use this as an opportunity for anyone that's still active to ask as many questions as you possibly can. Follow the prophets. Go ask your Follow bishop. The PR team. Yes, ask questions. And uh, I think this is an opportunity here that we need to start asking questions. We need to ask questions to our family members. We need to ask questions in our congregations and online because the prophet said we should. Yeah, although I know some people have already been called in for doing nothing more than asking questions in their congregation, in their wards. Uh, they've not advocated outside. They've, they've, they've raised questions uh, and expressed doubts and, uh, have been called in by bishops for, you know, quote, counseling. Well, I mean, um, historically we see that when organizations start doing purges and, um, kangaroo courts, that's usually a sign that they're on the right path to, um, you know, integrity and wherever they're going to Success. Go. Yeah. Well, I, that's, that's the beauty of all this, John, don't you see? Well, that's, I keep saying, um, you know, people are, are asking, what do we do? You know, how do we respond? Just keep the church talking. They're doing great. They're doing wonderfully. You just, just keep going. Keep keep doing this, church. Thank you. I I appreciate it. Um and um because they're like I said, Isom didn't do a bad job here. It's what she's working with. And they when they've set themselves up that they constantly insist that they are the one arbitrator of truth, but they don't give any truth. Take do this next conference. Write down every time there's a proposition, a truth-based proposition that comes out of their mouth. It's not tautological. Charity is the pure love of Christ. That's a tautology. It, it's meaningless. Um, when they say something that's 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 measurable, they don't. It's 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 there's there's nothing there. What they do is they say we are the arbitrators of truth, and you must obey us. That's it. It hasn't always been that way. You can go find these wonderful improvement eras where they're talking about the commies and all sorts of fun stuff, but not anymore. Um, and they've just backed themselves into a corner and it's, this is their own doing. It's just the reason they don't like Kelly is because she's saying that the emperor has no clothes and that people don't like that. And it, it, it's actually, uh, more objectively, uh, demonstrable than just these intellectual debates about what's doctrine, what's not, what's culture, what's tradition, and so on. Uh, you know, the, the, the scriptures, uh, uh, encourage us to verify the merits of somebody's position by looking at the fruits that they produce. Okay. Well, what kind of fruits do we see in Mormon culture today? Uh, we see. I hear, I hear Provo produces a lot of fruits, actually. <laughs> oh my gosh. You did not just say that. 
I, I was thinking more along the lines of uh, the fact that uh, we have some of the highest rates of passive aggression in the United States, more than twice the oh, national really? level. High, uh, 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 tragically, we have some of the highest rates of gay teen suicide in the nation. That's We have the nation's highest prevalence of suicidal thoughts among adults ages, uh, 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 according to a 2011 uh, study by the Center for Disease Control. Utah leads the nation in diagnosed episodes of mental illness. Utah leads the nation in online porn consumption. Utah leads the nation. That's because of the ex-Mormons. U- U- <laughs> Utah leads. I don't think so. Utah leads the nation in affinity fraud. Utah's among the leaders in uh, in bankruptcy. Uh, Utah is routinely in the top five to ten in the country in sexual assault, sexual violence, domestic violence, among the lowest rates for women who graduate from college and university. And uh, top five in the income gap between men and women. So if you uh, if you don't uh, like getting mired into the uh, uh, intellectual debates about what is doctrine, what's policy, what's tradition, and so on, just look at the fruits. Anybody who's got uh, a web browser and access to the internet will be looking uh, at porn if they're from Utah. <laughs> Well, I was going to say they they could they could Google the pathologies of the church and Mormon culture, but uh, but they're probably too busy looking at it's, porn. It's it, it's right there for anybody to do on, on a Google search. Hmm. But you can't see somebody mix a Harvey Wallbanger, which is a big um, stride for Utah culture. No, and you can't you can't have coffee and tea, but you know you can eat. Uh, uh, foods that are high in salt and cholesterol and fats and all the rest of it, and uh, not a problem. Yeah, well, the Mormons need something, and <laughs> that something is sugar. All right, well, um, uh, I, I invite everybody to go out and um, read through or listen to the discussion. It's it's fantastic. Um, Fabrizio does a great job. Isom does a great job. It's a, it's a very clear demonstration of the tension between the church that it is today and the modern world. And I said this last week, the church created a martyr with um, Kate uh, Kelly, and the eyes are now on the church, and it's the church's move, and it'll be interesting to see what they do. They, they're hoping it goes away. They're hoping this just disappears. But as um, Lindsay eloquently pointed out, you know, the church has opened up new avenues to say, well, you can ask questions. All right, we'll ask questions. I like that. I like that challenge. All right. Well, Mike, Lindsay, thanks for joining us tonight. And, Thank you. Um, thanks to the uh, studio audience. Mormon Expression is a production of the Whitefields Educational Foundation. To find out more, visit whitefieldseducational.org to find out about counseling services or the other initiatives. Mormon Expression is recorded live on Tuesday nights at 6.30. Come down and join us for a recording. Meet John, take part in the conversation, and meet our panelists.